Okay, so Esther chapter 2, follow along from your Bible or from your handout. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put under the custody of Haggai who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem under the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Thank you for this chance to get together and open your word, read your word, and study it together. Father, I just pray that you block out any distractions, anything in our lives or in our minds, Father God, that might be going on that might hinder from us hearing all that you have in this chapter. Father, I pray that you open our eyes, that we see wonderful things, Lord, things that we haven't seen before, treasures that you have for us, Lord, individually, as a group, corporately, and Lord, even as your church. Show us, Father God, teach us what we need to know, Father, because we know in your word is everything we need for life and godliness. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay. So last week was an intro with chapter one, and we really spent most of the time on um, when and where this story was taking place, and we got our first glimpse of the king himself. Now, if you remember, we talked about last week how Esther falls in line. This takes place after the first return of Israel from Babylon under Zerubbabel, but before Israel's second and third returns from exile. So I've got a little flow chart on here for you to kind of help you to see this. I am a visual learner. These things always help me to really understand the Bible. So what I want to do here is we're going to hit this flow chart, but before we do, before we even get to this 70-year captivity, I want to take you through a little history Again, because honestly, all history, you all, almost all of human history can be put in a timeline of world empires, okay? And the first one is Egypt. And we know from the very beginning here, you all, it was all about Egypt, the pharaohs, the slavery, the exodus from Egypt, okay, all the stories. After the empire of Egypt, we have the Assyrian Empire, Okay, this was um, the time of Jonah. Remember Jonah, who was at this time, he was part of the northern kingdom. Okay, he was a prophet. And what makes his story so unusual, you all? And I hope we get to do Jonah together someday because it is awesome. He was called to the Gentiles 
the prophets weren't supposed to be going to the Gentiles. But God caused, called him to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Okay? This is also after Jonah, about 500 years after Jonah, it was the Assyrians who captured the northern kingdom. Okay? So, after Assyria, we have the rise of the Babylonian Empire. This is the time of Daniel. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? The Babylonians um, are the ones who took the southern kingdom. Okay? Judah and the tribe of Benjamin would make up the southern kingdom. So that's your time of Babylon. And then we really hit this specifically last week was when the Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonians. Okay, remember Cyrus, he goes in, captures Babylon, and they don't even know it at the time. So the city was never destroyed. They were just overtaken. And what you need to know, you all, is when this happened, Everything that was going on in Babylon, it just got moved to Persia, okay? The same gods they're worshiping in Babylon, we're going to see in Persia, okay? Daniel himself was taken from Babylon, and he was in the court in Persia, okay? So they are the world empire during the time of our story, and... So now, if you look at your flow chart, Babylon took the southern kingdom. We know that they were destined to be in exile for 70 years. If you did one of your connections last week, you realize the reasons it was 70 years was because they had not honored the Sabbath year rest. So God told them, you, you did not do that for 70 years so you will be in exile. You are the Lord made sure his land got rest. We know by now how serious the Lord is about his land, okay? So at the end of this captivity, when Cyrus takes over, Cyrus in talking to Daniel, I mean, it's an amazing story. He allows the people to go free. Obviously, he doesn't know. He's just playing out what he's supposed to. It's the end of the 70 years, but he allows the people to go back, okay? And over a course of time, there are three returns, okay, back to Israel. The first one under Zerubbabel, that is so hard to say, and they begin to build the temple. So if you look down under Zerubbabel, you will see the books of Haggai, Zechariah, Esther is in there. This is when our story's taking place, okay? After the story of Ezra, then you get the second return under Ezra and then the third return under Nehemiah, okay? And Nehemiah, you all, by this time, he's the cupbearer in the court for Artaxerxes. So the king we're dealing with here, Nehemiah is in his court. He's his cupbearer. That's why he's so trusted. That's why the king said, yeah, go back and you can build the wall. Okay. So I hope you're beginning to see all this is just fitting together, both our story within the word and this word within the world. Okay. So after 
this return, and we talked about this as well, Esther is the last of our historical books. We do get some history of the Hebrews from the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and just a couple verses in Malachi, okay? But it sort of ends that historical period. And then you all, there is 400 years, 400 years before we get the writing of the New Testament, okay? And those a lot of times are called the silent years. But what I want to say is those years are not silent, that God actually laid them out beforehand, okay? And he did so in the book of Daniel. So one of your connections, and you can see it's kind of big there. there there's a lot to look into. But if you'll just read Daniel 2, 25 through 44, you will read Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And if you remember, he had a dream with all the, the statue made of all these different parts, okay? And Daniel interprets his dream for him, okay? Though those different parts were world empires that were yet to come, okay? It started with Babylon, the head of gold, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar was ruling. All the other ones would follow. 50 years later, Daniel himself has a vision. This is all in your connections that you'll be reading. And he has a vision of four vicious beasts coming out of the sea, okay? It's the same thing. It's the same dream. The statue, a beautiful statue, and four vicious beasts representing world kingdoms. I think it's interesting how... Man and God can see the same thing very differently, okay? But you can read about his vision as well because the remaining kingdoms yet to come, we know that the Persians fall to the Greeks. And then we have the rise of the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And then after that, they, of course, fall to the Romans. And then it is during the Roman empire that Jesus comes to earth as a man under that empire. We know there's one yet to come. That's why it's just underlined there. There's some conjecture of what this other world empire is going to be, what it's going to be made of, because it's a mix of something. And then obviously you all, this all ends with Jesus's return and the millennial reign of Christ. He will put in place a government on this world, the only one that is truly good, the only one that works, okay? So that is really all of this and kind of all of human history and a few empires, okay? But this, this is where we are right here. If you want, if that sparks your curiosity at all, I put an article there for you. Um, and you can go to the website and see it, but it's, it, it's pretty good. It's just called the 400 Silent Years, a Chronological Survey of Israel. So if you want more info on that, it's a great little read. So that's where we are. So chapter 2, verse 1, um, we're, we're going to see a lot of chapters start like this. I think this is why they decided these chapter breaks here. It just says, after these things... 
After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So we know that the book of Esther opened in the third year of his reign. And later on in this chapter, you all, we are going to see that it is now the seventh year. So three to four years have gone by between chapter one and chapter two. Okay. So what was going on during this time is what I just mentioned last week. It's the Greco-Persian battles. Okay. And there were four of them and I've got them listed and the years. So there's a map of the Persian empire And I told you, it was massive. Ladies, this was a massive empire. But yet there's one teeny tiny little country over there on the left that they don't control. I I just find it interesting that it seems like enough is never enough. So here's Greece, and they want it. So the first battle is the Battle of Marathon. And this is actually under Darius, which is Xerxes' father. So Darius goes in and he says he's going in because Athens and another city had kind of supported a revolt against the Persians, okay? But from the writings of Herodotus, who we saw last week, the historian, he says in his writings that his motives was just to take Greece. He wanted Greece, okay? So it was an embarrassing battle. Um, It took place on this... Um, plain, which is called Marathon. So that's where it gets its name. Um, The Persians lost 6,400 people and the Athenians lost 192. This also recorded by Herodotus. So an embarrassing battle. Darius goes home and he's planning to go back to Greece and he dies. So he dies in 486, and somewhere along that timeline, it might not be that exact year, but Ahasuerus comes to power. So he's wanting to avenge his father. So again, that is most likely you want the reason for that huge party we saw at the beginning of the book. He's trying to get everybody's favor, everybody's support, so he can go back to Greece. Okay, so his first attempt is in 480. This is the Battle of Thermopylae, um, first battle under Xerxes. He had already taken some pretty good chunks of Greece just through threats and um, some diplomatic initiatives. But he wanted the whole country. And there's a place in, called Thermopylae, which means hot gates. And it's the narrow pass in the country that you can kind of see on your map that gets you from the north to the south of Greece, okay? And if you want to get into Greece, you've got to go through that pass. So many historical battles have taken place here. Now, there was a man, a defector from Greece, who actually helped the Persians go around it, get through it, So they attacked by surprise and gained Athens, okay? So it was a victory for the Persians. But in the same year, this was a very short-lived victory. In the same year, they are making some more advances. But at this point, both the Greeks and the Persians were very low in supplies. 
There was a lot of fighting among uh, military leaders. And one of the Greek leaders who was head of the Navy said, Let, let's launch a big naval battle. And nobody wanted to support him. So he said, well, then I'm just taking my Navy and going. This, you know, I'm paraphrasing. But that was the thing he threatened. So they decided to get behind him. Well, then this same um, Navy leader went to Ahasuerus and said, I'm actually going to... Um, what would the word be? Defect, I guess. And I'm going to help you win. Okay? All you have to do is launch a battle, and then I'm going to support you, and you'll win. Okay? So Xerxes believes him. He goes into a bay, and then the Greek ships come in after him, and then it is an attack where they board the ships, they sink them. It's hand-to-hand combat. And I've got the numbers for you there, you all. The Greeks lost 40 ships, and the Persians lost 200. Okay. So after this, another horrendous defeat. So then Ahasuerus goes back to Persia, and he leaves one of his um, generals in charge named Mardonius, to continue to fight. Um, Mardonius ends up being um, slain in a battle, and at that point, they were just considered defeated. So the Persians drive them out. This battle, you all, again, the numbers are here for you. The Persians lost 30,000 of 100,000 men in the battle, and the Greeks lost 2,000 of 40. So they had fewer men and lost fewer. So all of this together, you all, this was just a humiliating, embarrassing effort, okay? So he had done all this to get the support of all these people to help him, and then this is what happens, okay? So this, imagine the shape he would be when he returns to Persia. Okay, and then here's a little, I'll let you read this on your own. I won't take the time to read the whole thing, but I pulled out, this is just a quote out of one of the books of Herodotus, and it's describing Ahasuerus um, at the time of the Greek wars when he had um, made a bunch of his engineers build some bridges for him, okay, for battle, and then a storm came and took down all the bridges before they could use them, and he blamed it on the engineers and cut off all their heads. And then he sent people into the water to literally whip the water. So this is the kind of man we're talking about, which I think gives a little insight into why later Esther might be a little bit nervous to approach him when she's not supposed to approach him. Okay? So... A violent, irrational person. But still, it says, after these things, somehow his anger abates and he remembers Vasti. So probably feeling pretty low, probably wanting um, some comfort. And now he realizes he doesn't even have a queen. Okay? So remember the state he was in when he made that decision probably wasn't in a good state in the first place. 
Um, we're not sure how long this anger took to abate, but just imagine how he was feeling during this time and what he'd be willing to do for a little solace, okay? Because in come these young men who attend him with an idea. Let's get beautiful virgins to be sought out for the king. Okay. Y'all, these were the same men that we met in chapter 1. Okay. These seven princes who saw his face, if you remember that, these were his top advisors. Okay. They had told him to get rid of Asti. Okay. Now he's remembering her. Imagine what could happen to them if all of a sudden Vasti comes back into favor. It could cost them their lives, their livelihoods, okay? So I believe, again, from what I read, it doesn't tell us this, you all. Some of this is my own just thoughts from reading the text and what I imply. I believe they're like, oh, we got to get his mind off her, okay? So let's bring in beautiful young women to get his mind off of her. So. Their, their names are here. There's seven princes of Persia and Media that we saw in chapter one. We know by now, you all, names are very important. Okay, we saw all seven eunuchs were named last week, and I think we know why. Okay, now we have seven princes. Seven pops up a lot as well. Um, think about this week. I think I know why they are named, but you all think about it and chew on it for a little bit and think, think if you know why we have their names recorded. So one of them who ends up being the one who gives a lot of the advice, his name is Mamukin, and his name means poverty. Now that's interesting because he's one of the top princes. So you know he would have material wealth and what I suggest is his counsel was pretty poor okay so for a connection I've got several places for you to read here you all and this is just the story of another king who listens to some young advisors he really should not have listened to okay this is Solomon a story about Solomon as we know, the wisest man in the world, and he listens and takes some advice he shouldn't. Um, it's after the kingdom has split. Um, he knows it's going to go to his servant, Jeroboam. Um, we see the rise of that servant. We see the reason for the northern kingdom's rebellion and the northern kingdom's immediate descent into idolatry. Okay, but you can almost trace it back a little bit to some advice that Solomon took. So read that sometime this week if you want. So verse three, let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Seuss of the capital under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Asti. So this pleased the king and he did so. Um, we continue to see the same theme, you all. Seems to be a king that just goes with whatever is put before him, whatever pleases him without a whole lot of forethought, 
to what these decisions could lead to. So he agrees to it. Um, so again, I think it's pretty clear motives of what they're doing. And we know, of course, that Vasti is still alive. So I touched on that last week. But again, this week, do, do a little digging on your own. See if you can come up with a theory of why did he keep her alive? You all, he and she embarrassed him. It would have been worthy of death, punishable by death, and yet he kept her alive. And that's, that's kind of fascinating. So, verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. That's quite a sentence right there. (laughs) And there's a whole lot in here. Okay. So look back, you all. It's on your page eight. You have a little map. Which shows the years of the three captivities of Judah. Oh, you know what? It's page eight in my notes. It might be different in your notes. Page six. Page six. With the blue. No, right, right here. Yes. Uh, page five. Page five. Little map on the bottom. Thank you. So remember, this map is your divided kingdom. The Assyrians taken in the 700s B.C. And then Judah there were three different captivities, okay? The first was in 605, and this would have been the captivity where Daniel was taken. Um, 597, eight years later, Jeconiah was taken and made prisoner. And then 586, Zedekiah was taken to Jerusalem and he was killed, okay? So we know that... Mordecai, someone in Mordecai's family was carried away, you all, during this second, um, this second captivity. So if we look at this, and I'm afraid I might have made your notes a little confusing, so you might want to write this in as I read it over this afternoon. We have a genealogy of Mordecai that starts with Kish, Okay. And we know um, Kish had Shimei, who had Jair, who had Mordecai. So we have Kish, who could have been Mordecai's great-grandfather. But sometimes, you all, there's um, holes in genealogies, as we talked about. So we don't know if we have every single person in this genealogy. But somebody... In Mordecai's family, in his ancestry, was carried away to Babylon in the second captivity. So if we just do a little math problem, we have the second captivity in 597. And the book of Esther, starting in Ahasuerus' third year, you all, the difference there is 114 years. 114 years 
people from Mordecai's family had been living in Persia. So this might be why they didn't go back when they could. Sometimes we read these things and because we don't have the timing, it's like, oh, why didn't they go back? Well, they didn't know anything different for, for generations. This was their life, okay? So, so again, on there, it looks like I'm saying Kish went back, but obviously it would not have been Kish. Just someone somewhere along this family was carried in that second captivity. So, Mordecai, we know, is the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So this is where we learn what tribe Mordecai is from. So tribe of Benjamin. And you can read here one of your connections for this week in 1 Kings. You're going to see how at first the southern kingdom was the tribe of Judah by itself. (laughs) It was only Judah. And then Benjamin decided to join in with Judah. So that's right there in Kings. So to understand their family line, you all, we have to go all the way back to the reign of Saul. Okay? So throughout your notes, I, I put all these little places in red for you. Okay, sweet. You can go through and read the entire story. It's fascinating. But I'm just going to kind of give you some highlights here so you know what we're dealing with. Now, at this point... In history, um, David is traveling with his mighty men. He had just gone through everything he went through with Saul, okay, running from Saul. Saul is now dead, so he's going to claim his kingdom. And then Absalom, his own son, rises up to take it from him, okay? So at this point, he's fleeing from Absalom, and he goes to a place called Baharim, okay? And as he's traveling through Baharim, um, this is what it says. Out came a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Jair, and he came and cursed continually. So the entire time, David and his men are traveling through this town. He is cursing them. He's calling him a murderer. He's saying he's worthless. He's saying your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to Absalom. Okay? So one of David's men named um, Zeruiah says, let me kill him. (laughs) He says pretty much, let me kill this dog. He cannot talk about my king this way. Okay? And you all... David's response, he says, my own son wants to kill me. He said, of course, someone from Saul's family is going to want to kill me. So he's like, just let him be. Just leave him alone. Just let him live. And then he says these words, you all. Um, He says, maybe the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today, okay? So he got cursed, but he didn't avenge it. So as the rest of the account plays out, you all, we know Absalom dies in battle, okay? And then David goes through horrible mourning for his son. In fact, it is so bad, okay? Because now he's the king, 
and he's mourning his son who was trying to take the kingdom from him. So all the people that had backed and supported David and protected him and fought for him are watching him mourn over what they see as the enemy. Okay? So one of those men, I'm sure a brave man, comes to David and he pretty much says, you have got to get it together. (laughs) said, you are the king. We have supported you. And then he says these words, for today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, you would be pleased. And he said, if you don't do your job, if you don't get out there and meet your people, he said, by the end of tonight, you will not have a man to stand with you. So David gets himself together. He goes to the gate, okay, as the king to meet the people. And guess who is the first person who shows up? Shimei. The man who had followed him, cursing him. Okay? So he falls at David's feet for mercy. And then again, the same one of David's men says, let me kill him now. Okay? And David says, no, my first day of king is not going to be marred by putting somebody to death. He said, let him live. Let him live. He shows mercy on him. You all, David's mercy on this man is how we got Mordecai. If David would not have done that, we wouldn't have one of the heroes in our story. Okay? That is amazing. You all, our choices... And our decisions have huge ramifications. And I suggest they have ramifications beyond our own lives. Things that you do don't just affect you. They don't even just affect your own children. Y'all, this, we're talking generations here. One decision affecting generations affecting thousands and thousands, I don't even know how many, probably more than that, people. Our decisions have ramifications for blessing, which is awesome to think about, okay? But we're going to see an interesting genealogy next week as well, okay, that doesn't, doesn't end quite so nicely, okay? So this is where we see Shimei, This is um, Mordecai's ancestry, okay? This is how he ends up in um, Persia, where he is now. So so this is Mordecai, and we learn in verse 7 that he is bringing up Hadassah, who is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, because her parents had been killed. So the young woman was beautiful, She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, he took her in. So we have a young Jewish girl. You all, some commentaries think she could be as young as 13. Hmm. 
13. Don't know that for sure, but a possibility. Um, so Esther, of course, was not her Jewish name. This was her name after exile, okay? And we see that when these people were taken captive, they would be given a new name. And we see the same thing in Babylon, okay? So one of your connections here, you can go through Daniel and get a glimpse of what happens there. We see um, when Daniel and his friends are captured, and there's just a place there where you can record their Hebrew names as well as their new um, Babylonian names. And, and this is something that occurred to me today, so it's not in your notes, but I'm thinking about it now. Um, or I think I might have the answer to it. <laughs> um, I know I ask you these questions, and then I think I know the answer. But um, Daniel is remembered forever by his Hebrew name. Esther is remembered forever by her exiled name. So think about that. Um, so her given name is Hadassah, which means myrtle. Um, according to Jacinius, which is just a Hebrew authority, you all, he tracks this name of Esther to a word that means to hide something hidden. Okay? And I think that's very important, you all, because as we talked about, nowhere in the book of Esther do we ever see the name of God, the name of the Lord, okay? It's like he's hidden, though we know he is at work the entire time doing unbelievable things throughout this whole story, okay? But that is what her name her name means. So we know, um, here's what we know about her so far. She's the daughter of Abihail from the tribe of Benjamin. Her family did not return to Jerusalem when Cyrus allowed them to go home. She was raised by her cousin after her parents died. She's first described to us by her physical appearance. Okay, That happened with Vasti as well. Remember, description of her physical appearance. Um, and it is important here that she was fair and beautiful because if she wasn't, this story probably wouldn't happen. Okay, um, So there's an application there that I know we talked about last week, but just a, a good time to compare the books of Ruth and Esther and in Ruth over and over again, seeing this, um, this intentional bringing forth of Ruth's character and never saying anything about her physicality, okay, even though we can apply, she, imply that she's beautiful. And then with Esther, everything about her physical beauty, and we see character things come out as we go through the story. So you can dig into that a little bit. So verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So there are estimates, you all, that put the amount of girls at around 400. Okay, I know. I mean, crazy. Well, 
Possibly. Possibly. Um, so here's Haggai. His name means meditations. He was in charge of the women. Um, his name actually appears in the work of Herodotus. So again, you all, we just see confirmation again from other sources proving this to be exactly how it says it is. Okay? P- people doubt this all the time. They don't doubt Herodotus, <laughs> which is crazy to me, but um, he just supports this and um, confirms it. So the young women um, pleased him, Haggai, and she won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem, okay? So we had seven princes, seven eunuchs. Now we have seven young attendants, okay? Over and over and over, six times, we get the number seven throughout history, um, throughout Esther. So I believe there's some typological meaning in there that we're going to hit later. Um, and she's put in the best place in the harem. So... To understand these palaces, you all, they would be divided. The men and women weren't in the same quarters, okay? You would have the Andron, which were your male quarters, and your gynoseum. You can see where that word comes from, which were your female quarters. Now, the female quarters were divided into three houses. You had the house just for the queen. She was the only one in this house, okay, and then her servants and attendants, Then you had the house for the secondary wives and for the concubines. And then the third house would be for the virgins. Okay. And then there's a hierarchy within this system because obviously you want to be in good with the one in charge of the women because you can see he's in charge of a lot of things. Okay. She won his favor. So she got her cosmetics. She got food, maybe even better food, similar to what happened with Daniel and when he had favor. Um, and then she gets her own attendants. So she's here, yet she gets seven young women to wait on her, okay? So she has obviously won a lot of favor with Haggai, okay? Now, when these girls would be brought in, they would be placed in house three, which is, of course, the house for the virgins, Okay, now, what I want to show you here, and then I'm going to show you how it connects with the Bible, um, because you all, things like this, oh, they should bother us. I'm like, it, gosh, these things that people went through, it, it's almost mind-blowing. Um, so, because I'm thinking of a real-world example here, I thought I'd put in your Bible study tip right here about just how to improve reading comprehension. And you all, this is in general. This is reading comprehension in general, but I'm going to show you specifically how we can do it with the Bible, okay? And these are things I taught when I taught in public school, okay? You build your comprehension of what you're reading by making connections to prior knowledge. That's how you learn that's how, that's how we, well, that's how our brains fire, okay? So the first is called a text-to-self connection. 
It just means when we're reading this, we start asking questions like, oh, gosh, I remember I felt that way when this happened to me. Oh, that's similar to when I did this. Or, oh, gosh, they felt this way. I would feel the same way or I would feel different. It's really kind of putting yourself in here and thinking about things that have happened in your own life that can help you sympathize, um, all sorts of things with what's really going on, text to self. The next is text to text, and that just means you are reading and you start thinking of other things that you've read, okay? could be anything. I cannot read Ruth chapter 2 when Ruth just happens to be in Boaz's field and he just happens to show up and not think of pride and prejudice. When, when Elizabeth just happens to be at Pemberley and here comes Mr. Darcy who just happens to come home right at that time. Okay, So that's just text to text connection. Okay, If you haven't read Pride and Prejudice, oh ladies, you got to read it. Um, the next is text to world. As we read anything really, we should be connecting what we're reading with things that are going on in the world, okay? Now, why this is so important in the Bible, more important in the Bible, you all, this is the book we need to understand. This is the book we need to comprehend, okay? So obviously, when we're reading this, our text to self is strictly, what is, what is this saying to us, you all, and what do I need to do with it, okay? This book is a mirror. <laughs> it's the truth. And when you are exposed to the truth, it helps you see things, okay? And we should all be reading this and seeing things in our lives, okay? Um, text to text, and this one is so fun in the Bible, you all. The more you read the Bible, the more text-to-text, text, meaning all the books within this book, you'll be going back and forth in. You'll be reading Esther, and you'll be thinking of Ruth, and you'll be thinking of something in Revelation, and, oh, this reminds me of something Paul said, and this reminds me of something Jesus did, and that's just text-to-text text, all in here. And every book you study is an opportunity to make more and more and more of those. And I cannot prove this, you all, but it is my belief that I bet really good study of any book in here could probably somehow take you to every other one again. can't say that for sure. I've never tried it, but maybe I will. So that's your text to text. The next is text to world. You all, this is also a mirror for our world, okay? What is, what is going on? Y'all, we need to be people. We need to understand the times we are living in, okay? I, I, can't, I can't stress that enough. We need to understand the times that we are living in. Um, unfortunately, a lot of our news gives us things that is not important for anything, we get more news about people in Hollywood than anything that is truly important in our world. And I'm going to tell you this again. 
I think the most important thing to get yourself informed on you all is Israel. It's in the news every day, okay? Um, because what goes on there affects us, okay? And everything that's going to happen there is already in here. And when something happens and you read about it, you're like, oh, that's right there. That's right there, okay? So these are our text-to-world connections. Um, and the reason I put it in here, because as I'm reading this, you all, thinking of 13-year-old girls taken from their homes. <sighs> y'all, this is just human trafficking at its worst, perpetuated by the government. Nothing could these families do about it. Imagine that. We thought about our sons last week. Think about your daughters ripped from you. And so, so here's their life. Because unfortunately, sometimes us is almost portrayed like it's some great beauty pageant. Like, oh, wow, I get to go and do this. And you know, they were taken from their families, okay, put in this home, okay, the third house. They get one chance with the king, one chance. So they go into the king, and then they get sent to the house of the concubines. How many of those girls do you think ever get called back? But they can't leave because they've been the kings. So they can never get married. They can never get ch have children. Their life is confined to this place. That is messed up. It's just so sad, so sad. Um, so imagine how these girls were feeling, the pressure, the anxiety. Um, so this was their lot. So Esther, and we'll hear this a couple times, she does not make it known her kindred. She does not tell people that she's Jewish. Okay, and remember, her family's been there a long time. So at this point, you know, probably a lot of non-Jews don't know who Jews are. The Jews probably still know, okay? But she doesn't let anybody know because Mordecai had commanded her not to. So we see a respect there and an obedience to what he says that is going to play out through the story as well. So every day, Mordecai walks in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther is and what is happening to her. So whatever his position is at this point, he's got some freedom to just be walking around the palace and to be going by the harem. So don't know exactly what his official capacity is. Um, we get a little more detail later, but he does have some freedom. So when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for, with, for women. So they went into the king in this way, and she was given whatever she desired to take from the harem into the king's palace. So this was a 12-month period to get ready for the one night. Okay? Now, 
from what I've been reading from other sources, you all, and I kind of combined several things, it looks like there's three reasons for this time period. It was for protection, preparation, and education. Okay, so first protection, unfortunately, not for the girls, but for the king. Okay, because a year is enough time to see, are there any infections, any diseases, is anybody sick, that, you know, anything that could be brought into the king's harem or brought into the king himself. And also enough time goes by that there's no surprise pregnancies from the virgins. Okay, so a year for that. Second for... Um, preparation, and it truly was, you all, if you look at that empire, these women are coming from all over, most of them very dry, arid places, you know, um, everybody with different ideas back then of hygiene, I mean, you know, they wanted the women to be a certain way before they went into the king, so that probably took a while to get their skin together, everything um, to make them look appropriate for the king. And then the third was education, and this is where they would be given instruction on court etiquette, okay? And we will learn later that Esther knows how a court operates, okay? So she learned that. Um, so this was a time where they learned how to act in an imperial court. So... After this intensive training, then Haggai would call them and they would, again, get to go in. In the evening, verse 14, they would go in. And in the morning, she would return to her second harem under the custody of Shazgaz. So, these houses were run by different eunuchs, okay? And then here's a girl, just another thing to think about. She's been a year with these other girls, and now this happens, and now she doesn't even have them anymore. She gets sent to another house because a concubine can't be with virgins, okay? So now she's in the second house, and she is there until the king summons her, okay? And if that never happens again, that's where she is, so... Shaz, Shaz, Gaz, which I guess is how you pronounce it. Um, his name, you all, so fascinating. He who secured the cutoff. Secured means to give assistance or aid to. Okay. I find that fascinating. Think of everything these girls are cut off from. Everything these girls are cut off from. Um, for your connection there, I actually put in the verse that I read to you out loud last week from Isaiah about the eunuchs and the blessing um, given to the eunuchs, which I just, I can't get over that. And it's so funny, y'all, this week I got more calls and texts and discussion about eunuchs than anything else. Um, but... Back it up, mom, my mom actually called me last Wednesday night after class and we started talking about it. We got our Bibles out and went all the way back to verse 1. So I gave you the whole thing there. It's kind of fascinating um, and just beautiful, you all, God's love and 
um, redemption. So, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in all, in the eyes of all who saw her. So she goes in. She obviously has favor with Haggai, so she gets his opinion. So again, you all, we just see a teachable person. We see... um, a respect for authority, okay? Some things that, again, these characters are going to play out all throughout the story. And when Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace, it was the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So you have um, the calendar there again on the next page. And you all, if you do books with me, if it ever mentions a month, you will see this again, okay? I, I use this all the time. So if you look up here at Tebeth, you would see in our, on our calendar, it would be sometime mid-December to mid-January. This is the only time that month is ever mentioned in the Bible. The other months are mentioned multiple times. The only time Tebeth is mentioned, so... What that means, I don't know, but I'm sure it means something. So this was the seventh year of his reign. So this is another time marker for us. So we're now four years after the beginning of the book, which was the third year of his reign. This book is very specific in its timing. Very specific in its timing. And I find that interesting, and I think, I think that has to do something with typology as well, okay? So you can think about this. But you all, in Ruth, if you remember, there were really not many markers. We had the months, but this whole story just kind of landed somewhere within 350 years, okay? We have exact years. You all, later on, we are going to have exact days that's fascinating and there's a reason this was written that way so we hear that the king loved esther more than all the women she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of vasty um you all can't lie this verse is a little tough for me to believe um but i take the word at what it says and i believe he loved her i do i i think god moved on his heart and he loved her because that's what the word says and when i think of his character and his decisions and read that account and think no way This is the kind of person this is. No way could he actually love someone. Um, But I believe he did um, because he's going to do some things later for her that are pretty remarkable, okay? And we know from Proverbs 21, 1, it says, The king's heart 
is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I think this vicious man who did horrendous things had his heart turned by God towards someone to bring about God's plans and his purposes to save his people. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen. So here's this young Jewish girl, (laughs) an orphan raised by her cousin. And now you all, she is the first woman of Persia. Kind of like Ruth. I mean, crazy, crazy to think that stories like this actually happen. Um, So she is the wife of presumably the most powerful man in the world at that point in history. So the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay, so look what he's doing. Okay, he's throwing a feast for people. He's giving gifts and he's remitting taxes. Okay, so think about this. Here's an application, you all. What links do you see between what he's doing here and what happens in this next verse that we're going to read? Because it says this. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, has that ever caught your eye before? Y'all, I've probably read this a hundred times, and until I studied it, that never caught my eye. They did the same thing. We have another group of virgins coming in. Why? I think it's because these men who have all this power and see the face of the king and have his ear and have influence with him are seeing, uh uh-oh, somebody else is having influence on him. Somebody else is getting a little too much power here. So let's maybe bring in some other women to make sure he, he really doesn't care about her. Let's get his mind on somebody else, just like what he did the first time, okay? And again, you all, these are, please know, a lot of this is just my own thoughts. You are just getting my own thoughts here, okay? So read, study, you might come up with something different from that. But that's what I think is going on here. Um, so it says, at this time... When this happened the second time, by then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Okay? Earlier he was walking around the palace, so we're not sure exactly what his job was. But again, lots of freedom. Um, Now he's at the king's gate. If you did that word study, you know the gate is where it's at, you all. The gate is kind of this power place where things happen. And now here's Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Okay, so he's got a powerful position. 
Um, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So, again, um, I just said that. We see this gathering for the second time. Um, The gate, we saw that with Boaz, how important that is. And while he is at the gate, 22, the knowledge, this knowledge came to Mordecai. Um, it was told to him that two of the eunuchs, um, Big Than and Teresh, wanted to lay hands on the king because they were angry. So he gets told this plot. Mordecai takes it to Esther and Esther takes it to the king. Okay, so a couple things going on here. First off, we know that at least still, at least right now, she is still in with the king. Okay? Later, she has to go in um, uninvited. Okay? Right now, she's still with him. Okay? Um, Which kind of supports what I had said earlier that maybe he really cares about her and that was a dangerous thing for these other men. So she tells the story to the king. And um, in Cephas, and I've got him for you here in this little box, like Herodotus, a historian, you all, but he was a Jewish priest, a scholar living in the first century. And a lot of the information we get on Jewish history comes from him. Okay, And in his writing, he records, we don't get this from the word, But he says the story went that the two eunuchs, one of their servants kind of told on him to Mordecai. Okay. So the man who went to Mordecai was one of the eunuchs' servants. So this is how Mordecai learns of it. And thus, um, through the chain, the king learns of it. 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So gallows, when we think of gallows, we typically think of like a noose, okay? Um, Back then at this time in Persia, it would have actually more likely been just a stake. These people were impaled and we'll learn a little bit more about that later, but this was the Persian way. This is how they, um, this is how they did this. It was impalement. So everything was written in the book of Chronicles. Geez, I know, I know. It's just like one thing after another. You all, what people do without God? Um, um, Oh, I'm just so glad that's not me. <laughs> I don't care if anybody's phone and here goes off. I'm just so thankful it's not mine. <sighs> so the Persians kept records of absolutely everything. Very, very detailed reports. And you all, the reason they did this is because kings, they had to make sure they were rewarding people that needed to be rewarded and they were taking care of people that needed to be taken care of because this is how you got people to follow you, 
okay, but both sides. So everything was recorded in detail. So this account was recorded in the book of Chronicles, okay, it says in the presence of the king, written down, probably everything, very detailed. It would have been the Persian way to celebrate and honor and reward Mordecai, but it didn't happen, okay? And you all, th this is how they did that. So, so I believe, again, the only reason it didn't happen the way it should have happened is God somehow stopped it because he knew there was a time this information needed to come out, and it wasn't right now. Mordecai did not need his reward right now. Now, Mordecai might have wanted it right now. He might have been wondering, well, what in the world? I just saved the king's life. Okay? But we will see a few chapters later exactly why this wasn't taken care of at the time. So we too, you all, interesting enough, we have the chronicles of the kings as well. That's some of our books. Okay? And it will come into play later on on a night where King Ahasuerus can't fall asleep. So, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this book, you all. Lord, I just thank you for these women that are here to study and know your word, Lord. I pray that as they begin to dig in, Lord, you reward them with insight and with hunger for your word. Lord, as we all begin to read and study more, may you just increase that in us. Lord, we want to be women of the word. We want to know your word. We want to understand your word, Lord, and we want to act upon your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who enables us to do this. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.